from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Elizabeth Clement will join today to talk about a new court program to help address parenting time issues in custody cases. We'll also talk with her about her leadership of the court and other issues. Then we're going to talk about the new Shot Stopper program announced by Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan during his State of the City address, attempting to get community groups more involved in stopping crime. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. When parents are separated and separated from their kids, lots of things get harder. There's often emotional turmoil to wade through. There's figuring out what kinds of supports the now separated parents need to care for their kids independently. And there's a lot of logistical things to unpack, including who cares for the kids when. Understandably, disputes are pretty common under these circumstances. On March 10th, the Michigan Supreme Court announced a new Michigan Resolve family system. This is a free online platform that helps families resolve parenting time and other domestic relations matters typically filed in circuit courts. Later in the hour, we're going to talk about a new program the city of Detroit is issuing to address gun violence. You all heard Mayor Mike Duggan talk about this idea of getting community groups more involved in the efforts to decrease crime. But before we get there, we want to talk a little about this new program at the Michigan Supreme Court and about the court itself, which has somewhat new leadership. Uh, what does this new program do? How does it make things easier for individuals to navigate parenting time? And what else is going on at the state's highest court? To talk about all of this, we've got Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Elizabeth Clement. Justice Clement, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Yeah. So before we get to the new online platform, let's talk about what the old system was. How did parents have to navigate these issues about parenting time before in circuit court? Yeah, so, um, you know, typically what we what we would see is that if there was a dispute about, you know, even simple things like changing a pickup time or changing a day because of a conflict, um, if, if the parents couldn't agree, they would have to go to court or they'd have to, you know, reach out to the friend of the court and and you know, either travel to the court or, or work, you know, sometimes in a system that was very confusing and try to get resolution. Oftentimes, because of, of the, the time that it takes to do that, that resolution, you know, oftentimes couldn't have been met before before the time needed to make that change. Um, and so the, the prior system and, and how things have been done for years is, you know, that typical, you need to go to court, both parties need to be there, you need to, you know, you need to be talking to one another um, and, and trying to figure it out. And and we saw that, you know, for a lot of these disputes, um, there ha- there had to be a better way. Um, and so that that's that's what we're here talking about today. Yeah. So Michigan Resolve Family System is what the court has come up with. Let's talk about what that is and how it works. Yeah. So um, we we call it the MI uh, Resolve Family System. And, and it's a, it's a really innovative, uh, very innovative approach. Um, the, the, the key things that I want to, I want to start with is number one, it's free. Um, so it's free to, to, to families that use it. It's an online platform. Um, and it provides a secure text-based conversation space. So, um, what, what families would do if, if they, you know, are, are constantly having things that, that they need to communicate and for whatever reason they, they're, they're struggling to communicate just one-on-one with, with one another. 
to make these changes, they can they can use this system, and they would we, they would sign up for it. They can use it on their smartphone or their laptop or tablet, and it's it they it's a conversation that they have with a mediator involved. So they can post exactly what they're looking for. The other party can review that, can take some time to think about it, can respond um, with with you know maybe a you know a, a counter solution to that issue, um, and. And a mediator can get involved and, and assist them all through this platform, so that the, the parties don't have to go to court um, and you know and, and resolve it in, in person. Um, so it's it, it's something that you know they can use to create new parenting time agreements or revise you know current agreements um, or even just simple things like making up missed time. Um, and and there's a trained mediator to help them through that entire process all on on a device. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the thing that I said in the open about how emotional these issues can be when parents split up and have to split custody of their children. Is is one of the aims here uh, to make the process uh, more navigable that way. And in, in other words, going to the court and, and getting things done can also be kind of emotional and daunting. Uh, being able to, to do it in this alternative way is, is some of the thought here, uh, just to make things uh, less, less emotionally uh, difficult for, for these families. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about just your, your everyday, you know, conversations, you know, if, if, if you are able to do it in, in, in a platform like this where you have time to think about, you know, what, what is your response or what are you concerned about um, versus being in person and, and having that emotion kind of drive things and having to respond immediately, it, you know, things can take a turn that, that they otherwise wouldn't because of that emotion. So I think you've really hit on, you know, where we, where we have parents that are not able to, you know, co-parent directly where they're, you know, communicating via text. Um, or even sometimes parents that get along really well um, and and do communicate really well about their children, sometimes things come up that they cannot find resolution to. And so this helps, I think, take that that emotion and that that conflict out of it um, as, as kind of the, the driving force and really puts the facts um, forward so that that each parent can say, you know this is what I'm looking for. Here are the reasons why. The other parent can read that. A mediator is, is looking at all of it as well. The mediator can also go direct with each parent. Um, so if things are not progressing to, to resolution, the mediator can, can talk to parent one directly without the other parent seeing it and then, and then do the same with the other parent and, and try to help pull them a little bit closer um, so that they can find resolution. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Chief Justice Elizabeth Clement. Uh, she is the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court here in Michigan. Uh, right now, we're talking about a new system to help families uh, navigate the uh, parental custody time uh, with the courts. Uh, we're also going to talk with her about the other things that the court is up to and about her leadership of the Supreme Court. Uh, we would love to include you in the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know if you're someone who interacts with uh, the courts about uh, parenting time and custody, uh, all of these kinds of really emotional family issues that uh, end up in the courts sometimes when uh, when parents split up. Uh, also, if you just have a question for Elizabeth Clement about her leadership of the Supreme Court, she's pretty new in the role. We're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. Uh, this is the time for you to be able to ask her those questions. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also so go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation. Uh, Justice Clement, I want to talk about how many families in Michigan have to navigate this. And uh, I mean, this is not a small part of uh, the court's work. It's a it's a big part of it. Oh, it, it's a yeah, it's a huge part. Um, and and if you, know, if you think about it, these conversations and these these decisions need to be made you know, all the way up through, you know, 18 years, um, you know, in, in some cases. And so, yeah, we have a lot of families that I, I think are really going to benefit um, by working together um, through, through this, this, this platform um, and, and really find that, 
that they can get a lot of things resolved um, and hopefully improve those communications going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also want to talk about things going online like this and the court's work to make things uh, be more uh, more digital. That, that accelerated, of course, during the pandemic. Uh, but I, I know that there are some things that, that I guess we just kind of realized they work better and they're more accessible. Uh, there's been a big change, I think, in the way that the, the court uh, deals with um, uh, you know, digital access and making things more accessible uh, by making them digital. I, w- I wonder if you can talk just a little about how this fits into that context. Yeah, so this is actually an expansion. The MI Resolve family system is an expansion of MI Resolve, um, which is an, a general online dispute resolution um, process that mm-hmm. we've that we, we've enrolled, um, you know, before, um, which which. Allow it's not it's not for families it's for individuals um, and it's available statewide for money disputes minor landlord tenant matters um, contract matters neighbor neighborhood disputes um, and so we learned from that and expanded that um, because we saw a need for families um, in, in relation to parenting time but in addition to that I mean we're making technology improvements um, uh, you know uh, in in so many areas. Um, you know, we had to we had to transition to remote hearings during the during the pandemic, and we learned from that. We learned that there are a lot of things that are that have typically been done in person in the courts that can be done remotely. That's not to say that everything can be. Um, we've identified what things you know really really do make sense to have in person, but for those other things, you know, we want to make sure that that the courts are accessible to individuals that are that are using them, because as we know. People have child care issues, they have transportation issues, they have conflict, conflicts that arise with their work schedule. And the, the more flexibility that we can provide so that people can get their business done in courts without necessarily having to go to the courts, um, we see as just a, a, a huge improvement on, on the, the public service uh, that we provide to, um, to our, our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also um, really focused on increasing um, not only the data that, that we have, but the data that we're sharing so that the public can see the work that the courts are doing um, and can look at dashboards and can, and, and can pull reports and see, you know, across the state what's being done where, what's working, what's not working. Um, so we're really moving into that technology and, um, and, and um, accessibility in, in a way that I think is, is really, um, really incredible and, and something that we're ex- very, very excited about. Yeah, uh, I, I, I want to also ask about the the balance, I guess, between digital access and things that that are resolved in in person, and and whether there's a concern among some people that going too far into into digital makes the court uh, feel distant or impersonal uh, to people. How how do you how do you make sure that that balance? makes sense for uh, for our citizens. Yeah, it, I mean, it is so important to, to find that balance. And, you know, I don't know that we can ever be perfect at it, but that's why we have to, to constantly be checking, um, checking ourselves to say, are we pushing too much into this space um, for, the, for the purpose of being, you know, technologically advanced, or are, are we doing more harm than good? And we learned a lot during the pandemic um, of, of what things worked and what didn't, and we need to be, we need to stay flexible. We need to, we need to make sure that we're that we're collecting the data, that we're listening to court users. Um, we do we do surveys um, of court users to say how was your experience, whether that was online or in person or even a hybrid of the two, um, so that we can make sure that we're responsive to that. Because you're absolutely right, we don't want we, we're the courts are here to serve the public um, and to resolve matters. And we want to make sure that we're doing that in a way that the public has confidence and trust in, in the judiciary. Um, so finding that balance is absolutely one of our, one of our top priorities. Yeah. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter asks, he says he hopes the whole goal is really to overhaul the entire front of the court system as the current model leans heavily toward one side. He says the formula for financial support needs to be revamped as well. The current model includes overtime, which is not guaranteed income. Some of those, I think, are legislative rather than 
yeah. judicial issues. But I wonder if you can address uh, some of his concerns there. Yeah, you know, the, the, the majority of those are legislative issues um, and, and things that, you know, we partner with the legislature on, on a lot of the work that, that we do. Um, our goal is, you know, to, to focus on the process and to see where we can, um, we can provide the most efficient and, and, and productive services um, in line with what the legislature is asking for. So, you know, there's, there are things that the, there are some things that the, that the law requires that may need to be looked at and may need to be revised or even overhauled. Um, but, but what we do is we partner with the legislature to explain how that can work from a process standpoint and, and leave the, the policy making to, to them on, on what they think should, should and should not be included in that. Yeah. So I do want to talk uh, about your leadership of the court. You were unanimously selected by your colleagues in November to be the next uh, chief justice uh, of the court. Uh, talk about uh, the, the role, how it's, how it's fitting so far, uh, what yeah. some of the challenges might be that, uh, that you didn't know before, before you uh, put on the chief robe. Yeah, so um, I, I took over as chief in, in November, and then technically again in January when we do our, our usual um, election of chief. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important for people to understand that the Supreme Court kind of wears two hats. On one side, you know, it's all the cases that you hear that come to the Michigan Supreme Court, and, and we're, we're managing and, and working on those cases every single day. But on the other side is all of the administrative work that we do. And every one of the justices, all of my colleagues have various liaison roles um, to, to special areas of, of interest or special priorities for the court. Um, and so it's, you know, the, the chief role is really um, more concentrated on that side and making sure that, you know, all of the work that we're doing on the administrative side, the work that the state court administrative office is doing, that, that, that we're focused on what that mission and what that what those strategic goals are. Um, so, you know, luckily, I, I worked very closely with our, our prior chief, Bridget McCormick, before she left the court, um, and was very involved in all of those um, those administrative duties. And so, that you know, I feel I feel that the that the transition to me taking over as chief was was fairly seamless. Um, and I think a lot of that is is due to the tremendous staff that we have at the state court administrative office. Um, and also the, the Michigan Judicial Council that we put in place um, almost two years ago, which um, is, a, is a wide stakeholder group. Um, you know, it's not just judges and court staff, but it's the public and any, any user of the, of the court system. And um, this Judicial Council uh, developed and implement, implementing um, their focus on, on developing and implementing a statewide judicial strategic plan and a unified vision for the, for the future of the judiciary. So this is really our roadmap. Um, and, and frankly, it makes my job a lot easier um, because what I, what I focus on is, is you know, supporting the work of the Judicial Council and the priorities of the court and making sure that, um, that we're working with all of our partners, both at the state level and at the local level, um, to, to really be promoting uh, what we, what we envision the future of, of the judiciary to look like. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about the the politics of the court, which mm-hmm. if I went back 10 years, it was always in the news. And, and I can remember national stories about how poorly the justices here got along and the, the political split, even though, I mean, justices are, are technically – um, nonpartisan, but but nominated on the on, by by the political parties, uh, th- there was a lot of, I think, bad feeling and and disagreement. Uh, in in ten years time, we've got unanimous selections for uh, the chief justice, even though the court is is split. Um, so 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 tell us what what has kind of changed. I know you haven't been there for for all of that time. Um, and and how your leadership, I guess, uh, leans into the idea of a more collaborative approach to, to deciding cases and administering uh, lower courts and, and things like that. I mean, it's just it's almost night and day uh, between what I remember from the Michigan Supreme Court and, and what we've got now. 
You're absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I think back 10, 12 years ago, um, and, and the reputation of the Michigan Supreme Court was, um, frankly, just just dismal. Um, I mean, na- nationally, mm-hmm. people were, were talking about the court. Um, and it is it is it is night and day. Um, we have a very, very different court today than than what was there 12 years ago. You know, I think the, the impetus and, and really what started this um, was the relationship between former Chief Justice Bob Young, former Chief Justice Bridget uh, McCormick. Uh, when when uh, Bridget joined the court, um, her and, and, and Bob Young, you know, developed a relationship and really focused on civility and changing the reputation of the court. Um, and I think that all of the members that have, have since joined are really focused on, on civility and setting that example for the trial courts and the, the, the bar and, and the public, um, because we expect divisiveness and, and conflict in our other branches of government, because those are the political branches. But the judiciary is the independent branch. Politics has no business in the courts. And we really are, are focused on, on sending that message in our actions um, and, and, and our opinions and the work that we're doing. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have just tremendous uh, colleagues that share that vision of, of civility um, and, and working in a collaborative matter. Yeah, yeah. I want to take a couple of uh, phone calls before we have to break. Let's start with Elizabeth in Rochester. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh, Good morning, Justice Clement. I'm a longtime family law attorney here in Oakland and Macomb County, and there is a problem that my colleagues and I have been wrestling with for quite some time, and that has to do with the quality of the judges on the family division uh, seats. Uh, Every county has a family division um, Mm -hmm. section. So what happens is that uh, uh, lawyers will get elected to or get appointed to a seat on the family division, and they have absolutely no or maybe just a little bit of experience in family law. Family law is complex in many ways, and it's it's very dynamic. Um, What happens is that these individuals will take that seat, and then they don't know anything, and then they have to have all kinds of training, and it's it's just, it's a terrible thing for, uh, for families to have to go through. Um, when they have an individual who doesn't quite know what they're doing. Hmm. Then that individual maybe gets up to speed and suddenly he or she rotates off and goes to a different division. So can you, is there something administratively that the Supreme Court can do to help us better protect the interests of families by seeing that individuals with family law backgrounds uh, are appointed to or get elected to this particular division yeah. of the court? Um, it's a great question. Uh, like your help. Uh, Elizabeth, like your this help. is a great question, uh, and I want, I'm going to give uh, Chief Justice Clement uh, a, a chance to answer it after we come back from a quick break. Uh, we do need to take a break, and when we come back, we'll keep talking with Chief Justice Clement about the Supreme Court. We'll get Elizabeth from Rochester's question answered. We've also get to other callers and uh, social media commenters. 313-577-1019, of course, is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll be able to include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you tuned in. We're talking right now with Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Elizabeth Clement. Uh, she was appointed to the Chief Justice spot in November of 2022. Uh, we were talking about an important new program of the court to help address parenting time issues between uh, families uh, that have split up. Uh, we had a question right before we took a break about judges who sit uh, in family court. Uh, uh, Justice Clement, I want to start with you giving uh, an answer to our caller. Yeah, and thank you, Elizabeth, for for the very important question. Um, You know, we have seen and have had conversations with um, family law attorneys and judges around the state that have recognized 
um, this this longstanding issue in some of our counties. Um, you know, a, a, the majority of our counties do not have this issue uh, because they don't have that rotation or um, individuals that are elected are elected specifically to serve as as family law judges and have that background. Um, so, you know, the answer here, you know, is not simple. Um, you know, we we work with our counties, um, you know, with selecting the chief judge for the county, but the the county or the the, the court administration is really determined by that county as far as who which judge is sitting in in one spot. I agree with you that a judge that has you know, no family law background um, that comes in and gets the training and then has moved after two years or, or three years or even four years, you know, is not working for families and, and for the system in, in Michigan. It is not a good way to do it. Um, we have had judges that have have had no background in family law that have gotten the training and remained in, um, in, in a family law court for their career and have done incredibly well. So it's not that that you know, you you have to have that that um, that ability before you you do the work. You need to have the training, but you have to have the interest in it. And if you have judges that are only doing it for a short period of time because it's part of the rotation that they have to do, we know that that's not serving the best interests of individuals using the court. Um, so we, we we need to continue those conversations with with counties that are seeing that turnover because um, it's you know, in, in my opinion, it's unfair that. We have counties across the state that, that don't do it that way, mm-hmm. and you don't see those problems. But in, in certain counties that, that are choosing to do it that way, that this is the feedback that we're getting from families, from, from attorneys, and from judges. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I mean, every part of the, the, the legal system, every court is important in the sense of, you know, serving serving the public through – uh, you know, litigation and and law make law decisions and and things like that. But the the family court importance, the the, the extra um, the extra emotional uh, uh, significance that it that it carries, and and the consequences that carry from those emotions and those decisions makes it even more important that it's consistent. I guess uh, across the state. I guess I'm a little surprised to learn that that it is not. Yeah, and you know, I, I started my career as a family law attorney, and and Elizabeth is absolutely right. These are very, aside from the emotional piece of it, and, and the fact that we're talking about families and children and property, these are very complex cases, and we need we need judges that are that are trained in it and and understand the importance and want to do the work. Um, and so it, it's absolutely something that we've been having conversations about. With um, with various groups um, that have that have raised this, you know, multiple times of we've got to do something different here, um, and, and we're looking at what those what those options, you know, may be to help in those counties where where you see this kind of rolling um, rolling assignments, um, moving moving judges once they're trained off of the family law bench. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth, really appreciate the call and the great questions. Let's go next to Ken in Troy. Ken, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, and uh, I, I appreciate the time, uh, Justice Clement. Uh, the, the question I have is, uh, it, during the pandemic, a, a number of functions in a number of different domains Yep. Ken, your phone has cut out there. Um, I'm going to try to, to convey Ken's question, which is here in the notes, uh, and then we'll get it answered. He's saying virtual learning was pretty bad for school, and we're learning more and more, I think, every day about how difficult that made it for a lot of students and, of course, for teachers and other people involved with with education, so his his question is whether there are studies about whether virtual services through court are better, worse, or the same. Is there any data to suggest uh, that that moving and leaning into the digital st- space more will will make things better for the the citizens who rel- rely on the courts? So. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that we that we do surveys of uh, for for court users um, and ask what their experience was, um, and that's you know that's the best data that we have um, here with with what's what what we've done in Michigan. 
to give us a good sense of, of what's working. And when, when individuals have said, hey, you know, I did this type of hearing remotely and it was a mess because, you know, there were multiple people on and, you know, it was hard, you know, it was hard to know who was talking when, you know, we, we listen to that and we say, okay, you know, th- this may not be the right platform for th- this type of hearing. But if we're talking about something that is a relatively simple matter that an individual would otherwise be coming to court and sitting for several hours waiting for their case to, to be to be heard or to you know have that conversation with another attorney or or you know with a prosecutor, you know is is there an opportunity to, to take care of that matter if it's simple in in a short period of time remotely? Now, if a party was to say, I don't have access, I don't feel comfortable, I'd like to come into the court, we are absolutely wanting to be flexible with those type of situations because we understand that, that you know, remote, you know, remote um, proceedings don't work for every situation or, or for every person. You know, that, that connection to education is, is such, a, such a good example of not every child was able to, to learn, um, you know, in a, in a remote in a remote setting. Um, everyone is different. And so we need to make sure that we're flexible in those situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk a little about uh, an issue that I've been following really closely in the courts, not just here in Michigan, but nationally uh, for a while. And a series of rulings that the, the court made last year on this issue. And that's this question of how we deal with juvenile offenders. And uh, the state made a couple of rulings last year that are that are aimed, I think, at rethinking the way we deal with, with juveniles, uh, the way we consider uh, concepts like cruel or unusual punishments as they uh, relate to, to young offenders. Um, I, I just want to get you to talk a little about the court's reconsideration of those things. It's been uh, kind of a push and pull since the, the federal Supreme Court uh, more than a decade ago really, really changed the way that we're supposed to think about very harsh sentences for, for very young people. But, but it seemed like at the end of last year, there was real movement here, uh, here in Michigan on that, on that front. And I want to have you talk just a little about it. Yeah, so we, we did have um, we did have a few cases uh, last term that dealt with this this the question of whether um, youth that are older than age seventeen, um, which is what the the statute um, delineates as as um, the kind of the cutoff, whether youth o- older than that age, um, per our, our state constitution, whether or not they can be sentenced to life uh, without the possibility of parole mm-hmm. automatically. And um, the court came down with with several decisions. And full disclosure, I was actually in the dissent on on those decisions. Um, but I'm I'm happy to talk about them and then kind of talk about juvenile justice generally. Um, but the court's decision was that 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 um, that our constitution did protect um, those that were that were over the age of of 17. So it, it applied to 18 year olds um, and and used you know. Um, what, what we're seeing in society and, and research to show that, you know, brain development of young people isn't, you know, isn't cut off right at, at age 17. Um, and I, I mentioned I was in the dissent that's, you know, th- that was a, a decision that I, that, um, that I made from, from the law and where, and I fell on the other side of the majority and what I believe that, that the constitution and the law required us to do. Um, but I understand from a policy perspective why, um, why there is a push nationally for this, um, and um, I, I, I've worked um, on juvenile justice matters for for um, almost my entire career, and served on the, the governor's task force on juvenile justice that the lieutenant governor led. Um, and we have uh, we have a a, a a a package of recommendations that we think will really impact youth that are in the the juvenile justice system in Michigan. And really, be I, what I think is trans- transformational of, of that system. Um, it, using what we have seen is that's working in in a lot of places, and modeling that in others, um, and then and then ide- identifying you know what communities are are not doing what we expect, what we think are like best practices, and and um, 
and saying why and, and we and collecting the data to say what can we be doing better, what do these communities need to be able to serving the youth, serve the youth that, that are entering these systems and keep them either out of the system as a as a you know preventative and the priority keeping them out of the system, or if they are in the system, making sure that we're that we're using data to address their specific needs and not keeping them in the system longer than, than they need to be. Yeah. Um, so we're working now uh, with the legislature um, to, to start to start moving those recommendations and those priorities um, on the legislative side. Yeah. Okay, uh, Chief Justice Elizabeth Clement, it was really great to have you here uh, on Detroit today. Congratulations on being named Thank Chief you. Justice, and uh, we hope you'll come back and uh, talk with us soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. When we come back, we are going to switch subjects just a little bit. Uh, we're going to stay here in Michigan, but pivot to Detroit and explore a new gun violence prevention program recently unveiled by the mayor during his State of the City address. Shot Stopper is an effort to get community groups more involved in the idea of stopping gun violence. Eli Newman, a reporter here at 1019 WDET, is going to join to talk about it. also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for joining. Over the last 10 years, Detroit has been doing a number of different things to try to reduce crime and improve safety. While Mayor Mike Duggan has been in office, those strategies have included things like Project Greenlight, the distribution of gun locks, the controversial shot spotter program, and adding mental health co-responders to work in tandem with police. Well, Now, there is a new program that the city is implementing to prevent crime before it happens. Shotstopper is a $10 million community-based gun violence intervention meant to curb gun violence in some of the most severely impacted neighborhoods. This program is really kind of revolutionary in the sense that it puts its arms around community groups that may already be working to try to prevent this kind of violence and gets them funding to do more of what they're doing. So what is included in this program? How effective might it be? And how has the city been doing over the last 10 years to try to prevent and lower gun violence and crime in a bigger Sense. To talk about all this, we've got WDET reporter Eli Newman here with us. He is a reporter and producer here at the station, and he has been covering the Detroit police and safety in the city for quite a while. Eli, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Yeah, so let's start with what Shot Stopper is. How does it work, and how much of the city could be affected by it? Right. Well, so with Shotstopper, I mean, we're at the very beginning of a new, newly announced program. Again, this was something that came out of the mayor's state of the city, which happened just earlier this month. The application process for Shotstopper has not uh, necessarily hit its deadline yet. I think we're going to see grantees by the end of April. So we don't necessarily have a full idea. And uh, in its communications with some of these groups, the city is pretty um, broad in terms of what it's requiring from uh, these groups. They want there to be nonprofits and community organizations with at least two years of uh, violence prevention um, efforts under their belt or five years of federal grant um, uh, experience under their belt. Um, the idea is that every year we'll see three to five grantees that receive somewhere between seven 700000 to $1.4 million that basically get, get a, uh, um, a bit of a neighborhood, three to five square miles, and say, hey, can we actually put a dent in what we're seeing with homicides here or non-fatal shootings? Um, 
this idea of community groups getting involved, if you've lived in the city for any time at all, you know there are lots of community groups that are really working to try to organize uh, Detroiters and try to deal with not the arrest side of of crime prevention, but the, you know the community side of making things better. What's the difference, I guess, between those kinds of activities and what we might see with something like Shotstopper? Well, I, I think it's a formalization of that relationship, right? We're we're getting we're actually getting dollars towards these groups that have been. Uh, doing that grassroots level work of working within their communities to bring about this kind of violent reduction. But um, this is more of like a formalization of, of that process that we're saying that the city is saying, hey, community violence intervention is something that's important to, to us. Um, we want to give you the autonomy to create your own programs that, you know, something that's going on in Southwest Detroit is very different. That's going on the far east side. It's different around um, the, uh, the Rouge Park area. So I think there's all of these different um, ideas and mindsets and, and very unique circumstances that exist within each of these communities. And so the city wants to say, hey, if you've been doing this work, let's formalize that relationship. Let's get you some dollars. And if there is actual uh, a, a dent, if we, you know, the, the city actually has this formula where the, you're actually able to get more funding if there is uh, a, a reported drop in homicide and uh, shootings. So there is like this incentive that like, hey, if you're actually really able to do this work, you'll get more dollars to help you to continue doing that work. So um, what is the chief? Police Chief uh, James White sit on this program. Does he support it? Does he feel like this is uh, the kind of thing that could really help his officers uh, who who have not uh, so far been able to 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 get as far as he would like in terms of crime reduction and particularly gun violence? Uh, what's what's his take on? Sure, it? I, I would say that generally the mayor and the police chief really work in lockstep on a lot of city programs. Mm -hmm. So I haven't heard any. Um, criticism or anything like that coming out, out of the police department. And in fact, I think that uh, the police chief really has been um, advocating for these alternative different um, uh, methods to bring about this this change in crime, that, that there is a, a need for more mental health respondents, that uh, it's not something that the, the police department can shoulder on its own. So I, there's always been a willingness to expand and attack crime really on a multi, you know, it's a multifaceted issue with a lot of different factors. And I think that the poli police department and the police chief are supportive of any effort in this fight. Yeah. I'm talking with Eli Newman. He's a reporter and producer here at WDET. He covers breaking news and politics and community affairs. He's also been covering anti-crime measures here in the city of Detroit, including Detroit's new Shot Stopper program. Uh, we're talking about Shot Stopper uh, right now and the idea of getting more parts of uh, our community involved in lowering uh, crime and, and gun violence in particular in our neighborhoods. We would love to hear from you during the program as well. What do you make of this new Shot Stopper program, the idea of giving money to community groups to work in tandem with uh, police to reduce gun violence. Do you think that is going to have an effect on overall crime? Uh, also, if not, let us know what you think would reduce gun violence in particular here in Detroit, which uh, has been really confounding uh, authorities for a long time. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can include you in the conversation that way. I want to talk a little about residents and, and you know, just rank and file Detroiters and what they think about this. Uh, here's a clip of a Detroit resident who pushed for stop, Shot Stopper to be created. He was re interviewed recently by Fox 2 News. Those of us who have been doing this work and who are on the front line and in the trenches doing this work, that we are public health workers. And if we are public health workers, we need to be treated like first responders and we should be compensated and resourced so that we can do this work around the clock. Eli, that was uh, someone who obviously was pretty enthusiastic about this idea. But how popular do you imagine it is among Detroit residents? Sure. Well, you know, I was just watching one of the um, uh, presentations. Um, I, I, I found that there were 
uh, a lot of attendees, that there's a lot of people that are trying to get in on this funding. I mean, obviously, it's a lot of money, $700,000, basically at a minimum um, that that these groups are able to get. And I think that is generally the prevailing view uh, of residents that, you know, crime is not just something that exists within uh, the police department there uh, or is not just the role of the police department to to prevent, uh, you know, community leaders, uh members of the clergy, nonprofits, it's all, it's a, it takes a village, so to speak, right, to, to um, um, affect some of these really difficult numbers that we're seeing in Detroit. And, and the reality of the situation here is that with, when we're talking about that 10 year span of like what has, what has happened with crime and violence here, it has either generally stagnated or um, it's increased. I mean, just this year alone, we have like a 17% rise in homicides. Um, there were 309 murders last year. Um, those are numbers that are higher than they've uh, been. You know, if you look at 2015, it's higher than the numbers there. Yeah. So I think there is this really, um, it, it's, it's a, it, when, when there's a more than a thousand sh- shootings that happen every year, I think it's something that really does affect a lot of communities. And um, everybody wants to take a hand in trying to reduce all of that. Yeah. So I, I also want to compare something like Shot Stopper to uh, Shot Spotter, which, mm. <laughs> and every time I try to say one of those, I have to stop and think, which one am I talking about? Yeah, so they're, they're, very, they're very different. <laughs> they're very different, but they sound the same. But uh, what what is the relationship between uh, these kinds of uh, programs, shot, uh, shot, uh, shot, uh, stopper, spotter, and shot spotter, and yeah, Project well, Greenlight are are kind of on mm. one side, and Shot Stopper is on another. Right. So we have a lot of uh, technology that is being used in surveillance. I think that's kind of where we're really seeing. There's these kind of two different camps of, in terms of uh, how we address crime. One is uh, what we've seen from the mayor's office, Shot Spotter. Green light, you know, mm-hmm. the, these programs where it's like, hey, you have a, a video camera or a microphone in a neighborhood and, you know, that's gauging in these kinds of uh, uh, activity. I mean, I'm looking at, at a weekly report right now of just the shot spotter usage in Detroit uh, in the 8th precinct, which is one of those higher crime um, areas. There was a, you know, 430 incidents that were recorded this year, um, 1800 shots fired that it, that it uh, noted and six guns recovered. So there, I think there are a lot of questions about the efficacy of these programs, right? There's um, a lot of literature that we see in other cities where Chicago has had a uh, shot spotter for a while and we haven't necessarily, they, they didn't necessarily conclude that it had a, um, a major result on lowering crime. I mean, we look at programs that are kind of comparable to Shot Stopper, which is the long-running ceasefire program in Detroit, right? This is so, this is also a community violence intervention program where um, local leaders were. Um, I mean, it was more specific to certain precincts that there was a lot of gun violence. But the idea is that you know we're going to have a bunch of people in a room, we're going to hash out the, uh, our disagreements, not using violence, and um, does, does that have an, an effect? And, you know, we've had studies of these programs. The Justice Department did a, you know, had a study. The National Institute of Justice has found that a program like Ceasefire, a program like Greenlight has no effects in actually deterring crime. So there are a lot of longstanding questions about, you know, when we start to implement these kinds of programs, are we getting a return on this investment? Well, and, and it's an interesting it's an interesting way to think of this new program and what the reception for it might be. It is very different. It is a very different approach, but because people are so familiar with the the controversy over these other uh, these other kinds of programs, I wonder if there will be a real skepticism about shot stopper. Well, you know, I, I think it, it, it's different in a lot of ways. We're not necessarily contracting out with like a company that might seem kind of foreign or, you know, that that's that's, you know, publicly traded or anything like that. This feels a lot a little bit more grassroots that we're uplifting people who are doing the work within the community to, you know, have the resources to be able to continue to do that work. But again, I think because 
how open-ended this program is in its inception, we really have to see case by case with each of these groups that are getting these grants, like what they're actually doing, because they might vary from one to the next significantly. And so we can't really necessarily gauge any of this until we start seeing that. And I think part of the way that this is conceived of is that there's it's very data driven, right? That you're going to have a you know a, f a five square mile radius, and if we and we can check the numbers from quarter to quarter, month to month, to see if there are less homicides, if there are uh, less shootings. And I think that there is a, a, a data driven approach that the city is taking in terms of uh, continuing this program and doing that gut check as time goes on. Yeah. Um, so what do community groups need to do to participate in this? We've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, I want to make sure we tell people how they can engage with this. Right. Yeah. So there is an application process that is open right now. You know, so people go to the you know city website. I mean, it's one of those things, again, <laughs> with ShotSpot or ShotStopper, you might get a couple of uh, uh, Google redirects on that. But, you know, the city does have a page where, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, an approved contractor. There's an application program that you're supposed to uh, delineate that map of like where you're going to be operating, um, what you intend to do, you know, what your history is. And then eventually, you know, your application gets processed, it gets chosen. I'm sure there's going to be, you know, a couple dozen um, people who are, are, are different groups that are trying to get um, at this, at these resources. And eventually, it does, you know, there'll, there'll be a selection made and eventually it'll be like a city council process. It's a, a contract just like any other to see whether or not it gets approved. And we'll start seeing that happen around June. All right. Uh, Eli Newman of WDET, great to have you here to explain this new program. I'm sure you'll come back and let us know how it goes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk with the U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Julie Smith, and explore America's foreign policy approach to places like Russia and China. As Smith is from uh, our neck of the woods here in the Michigan, so that'll be an interesting conversation with her. Also, remember, if you like our show, enjoy listening. You should share it with your friends and your family, your neighbors, anyone you think would really enjoy it as well. You can find it on WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can download wherever you get your podcasts. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.